Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust, and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. In this episode, we will read an excerpt from Aristophanes' speech in Plato's Symposium and talk about love. Once upon a time, there were three kinds of human beings, male, female, and androgynous, with both male and female elements. Each human being was completely round, with four arms and four legs, two identical faces on opposite sides of a head with four ears. As they were powerful and unruly and threatening to scale the heavens, Zeus devised to cut them into two. Apollo then turned their heads to make them face towards their wound, pulled their skin around to cover up the wound, and tied it together at the navel like a purse. After that, human beings longed for their other half so much that they searched for it all over. When they found it, they wrapped themselves around it very tightly and did not let go. As a result, they started dying from hunger and self-neglect. Zeus took pity on the poor creatures and moved their genitals to the front so that those who were previously androgynous could procreate and those who were previously male could obtain satisfaction and move on to higher things. This is the origin of our desire for other human beings. Those of us who desire members of the opposite sex were previously androgynous, whereas men who desire men and women who desire women were previously male or female. When we find our other half, we are lost in an amazement of love and friendship and intimacy that cannot be accounted for by a simple appetite for sex, but rather by a desire to be whole again and restored to our original nature.
I remember the first time I heard that story and I actually found myself being less excited about what it says on the origins of love than about what it says on the origins of our navel. I found it very cute and I still tell this, uh, this little myth to children sometimes. So this was Aristophanes' speech about the nature or the origin of love and you can find this text in Plato's Symposium where Aristophanes is one of the characters in this, uh, in this very famous uh, dialogue from Plato. But just note that Aristophanes also existed as a real person. He was famous for being the father of comedy, and he was writing between the 5th and the 4th century BC, which made him actually a contemporary of Socrates, who is also, as usual, a character in Plato's dialogue. In this episode, we will explore different ways of looking at love, various explanations on what can lie at its core, before we'll expand on Aristophanes' account on love as this union or pursuit of wholeness, as it's described in the text. If we look at how people feel about love today, and here I might be speaking more about my generation maybe, or my personal experience in discussions with friends, we often observe this polarity, I would say, between either a blunt, cynical skepticism about love. Here I could use Welbeck to describe that when he says in his book Serotonin, love for men is nothing but the recognition for the pleasure that is given. So it's, in this sense, very self-centered, centered on my receiving, consuming pleasure. There is this attitude of demystification to maybe prevent oneself from getting too attached, maybe as a sign of desire for autonomy, to live unbound. We all have friends, when it's not ourselves for that matter, who don't feel compelled to engage in lasting relationship that might involve compromises, affect one's life plans, and who simply want to enjoy sexual pleasure now and then with either a sex buddy or with different partners. Some see it as a form of free love, others as the symptom of a self-centered fear of commitment. But also, I would say, we find a lot around us people who would remain attached to the fairy tale ideology, who have very strong hopes for finding the one, the soulmate, as it is also described in the text of Aristophanes. We long for romantic love, thousands of songs, books, movies that come out every year about romantic love. And it seems to not be as easily reductible to a simple accessory in life as more cynical people could say. We will ask ourselves what causes us to love and also what love might cause in us. Can we explain, even justify love? Why do we love? Why should love have the kind of centrality in our lives it manifestly does? And what views do philosophers suggest regarding what we should call love? Indeed, philosophers intertwine a descriptive account of love, they describe what forms love does take, as a matter of fact, with normative accounts of love, namely describing what love ought to be. So we're gonna keep that ambivalence here in this episode because love is an ideal as much as it is an attitude we take towards other people. Love is at the crossroads of our affective life, because it's a passion, 
but also our cognitive abilities, because it can have to do with qualities we identify in the person, such as beauty or intelligence. It also has to do with our volitional tendencies, our desire, our will, that is supposed to echo not only a fleeting or ephemeral emotion, but a lasting one that we choose to make last. In that sense, the phrase, I love you, has not only a descriptive aspect, but it has a performative aspect. When we say I love you, we're not merely describing what we feel, we also commit somehow to feeling that love in a durable way. When we try to define love, a first idea that comes to mind would be the definition of love as deep caring or deep concern for another person. Love is often described as a matter of caring about another person as the person she or he is for her or his own sake. So love in that sense would be the desire for your beloved well-being. It has to do with empathy, it has to do with encouragement, etc. You want the best for your partner. You will be by their side if they get sick or if they need your support in any way. You are ready to prioritize the needs of that person. But first of all, is it always the case? There is, I would say, a risk of paternalism in this attitude to say, well, I am loving you because I deeply care for you and I want the best for your own sake. Well, who am I to say what's the best for your own sake? So that's one first problem with this definition of love as deep caring. But also, another criticism we could uh, come up with is the fact that love can have nothing to do with the desire of your beloved well-being, with the examples of loving someone you resent at a specific moment because you had an argument or something like that. Or even better example, you can love someone who is dead. So here I think we should maybe go deeper and instead of describing merely a product or a consequence of love, which caring seems definitely to be, we should look a bit deeper to see what love essentially consists in. So here I would say that we can oppose two main schools of thought. One would be focusing on love as valuing someone and the other would be love as a union, as even potentially a fusion between two beings. So let's look at love as valuing someone. Valuing either because we perceive a pre-existing objective value in someone, and we appreciate that value, or because we give value to someone by loving them. So that's something we should also keep in mind here when we begin to speak about love as valuing someone. Is it because we value some existing characteristics of the person or because we love them and therefore give them value? So before we dive into that, but it has to do with this difference, we will suggest a little reminder on the three different types of love that we find in the Greek. So very often we speak about philia, agape, and eros as three main types of love we can speak about. So if you look at philia, philia very often is more translated by friendship, by a social bond. It can also include storge, which is the familial or filial love. 
And like Eros, as we're gonna see later, philia is generally, even, not, uh, even if not universally, understood to be a response to good qualities that we find in a beloved one. Okay, so you have this idea of valuing someone because of pre-existing objective qualities in that person. Now let's look at agape. Agape is a very different type of love. It's an unconditional, divine or spiritual love, the sort of love that does not respond to the value of its object. It is spontaneous, it is unmotivated. Again, it is unconditional, so regardless of the objective value of its object, and it's supposed to create value in its object by loving it. So in that sense, it's a rationally incomprehensible love. Now, finally, let's look at Eros, which is potentially the most, uh, I would say, common translation for love. And it refers more specifically to passionate desire, or even like sexual passion, desire of possession, therefore egocentric, selfish, but as a response to the merits of the beloved. So here again, we are sensitive to the values that we find in the person before even loving that person. And those values are the reasons why we fall in love. So loving in this erotic sense is being responsive to the beloved merits. It depends on reasons. You love someone because of their qualities. I'm sure some people that are listening now at some point used to rate other people's susceptibility to seduce them according to certain criteria, so physical beauty, humor, I don't know, you could add voice or smell, etc. And indeed, in the symposium, Socrates speaks about several degrees of love inspired by beauty. He's actually quoting the female philosopher Diotima, and he speaks about the first degree, which is this sexual attraction, which is for him a deficient first experience, which is a pure response to physical beauty, in particular beautiful bodies, okay? And then the second step would be loving the person for his or her soul. So you get a bit deeper here, you elevate somehow your appreciation of beauty to another level. And ultimately, that would be the third level, you actually love the form of beauty for itself. That's why we speak about platonic love, which is that level where physical attraction is not important anymore. One more thing that is pretty interesting to know about Eros is that it's, you know, a lot of people actually think that Eros is this uh, cute little chubby Cupid, uh, you know, following Aphrodite everywhere, etc. Sure, you have uh, traditions in Greek mythology describing Eros as a son of Aphrodite, but at some point in the symposium, Socrates suggests another theory about who Eros really is. For Socrates, he's the son of Poros, which means abundance, expedience, and of penia, which means poverty. So that makes him this intermediary figure. He's forever in between, in an intermediary position, a contradiction of sorts. He is in need, in distress because of his mother, but also resourceful and strong and ambitious because of his father. So love in that sense is a movement, a strength, a momentum, but also a lack. 
You also find this idea of movement, of momentum, in Aristophanes' speech, where he describes Eros as a force pushing the two half-humans towards their other half. Let's go back to the idea that love is an act of valuation, valuing characteristics in a particular person, which is the first step, if not the only one, for Eros. So here again, a quick reminder, we need to know whether the lover values the beloved because they are valuable, so that would be an appraising value, or whether the beloved comes to be valuable to the lover as a result of their loving him or her. So that's the bestowing value. The people who believe in appraising value usually think that we can justify our loving this specific person rather than someone else. We can explain why we chose this person and not that one. This conception of love as appraising someone's value can be easily challenged, though. It seems that we're more talking about a love of properties than a love of persons. We would at best love a type of person, but not really a particular person. We lose here what is distinctive about love, which is supposed to be an essentially personal attitude. So any person embodying the same properties would do just as well as my beloved. My beloved would be replaceable. I may meet another person one day who exhibits the properties I love to a greater degree. It's, you know, a more beautiful person. It's a funnier person. It's a, I don't know, better smelling person. So it may seem that I have reasons to trade up to switch my love to the new, better person. In other words, you are looking for qualities, regardless of the individual that carries them. So you are not in love with a person per se, but with a list of properties you find in that person, but that you could also find in another. Actually, you find an illustration of this idea in the way certain people use dating apps. You think that your chances of falling in love with someone will increase if the person embodies certain characteristics you already have in mind before meeting anyone in particular which unfortunately often leads to an overwhelming number of possible matches and to the impossible quest for the perfect match, the person who's supposed to combine all the qualities you are looking for. So let's look now at bestowing value. So love not as appraising value, but bestowing value onto the beloved. So here we have a conception of love where love confers importance to the person, no matter what the person is objectively worth. So here we have a conception of love as a blind movement, a gratuitous, irrational, potentially creative even emotion, which is not merely or not at all a response to an antecedent value, to pre-existing characteristics that are valued. Here, a reference in literature can be useful. Some of you might have heard about Stendhal crystallization process. Stendhal is this very famous French author in the 19th century, and he speaks about miners who throw a branch in the salt mines and leave it there for several months. And when they come back, they find it covered with scintillating crystals. 
What Stendhal is trying to say with this metaphor of the crystallization is that we tend to overrate the merits of the person we hope we will gain the love of. The attractive characteristics of this person are exaggerated by the love we project onto them. I'm sure all of us can relate to that when we think about the idealization at the beginning of a romantic relationship. We just met someone for the first time, there is an attraction developing that then very quickly, and it doesn't really need a few months, transfigures the person that inspired that love, that at this point is really just a trigger for that projection of qualities onto that person, to the point where it is not the person that we see nor love, but the perfections we persuade ourselves that the person has. So the risk here is that we desire a potentially fake representation or fantasy of the person. And here I think about another uh, philosopher, namely Spinoza, who says very famously that we don't desire something because it is good. It is because we desire something that then we actually find this thing good. So loving something is again what bestows value upon that person or this object. Desire here, or love, is a blind drive, randomly falling onto certain representations of objects. And it shapes the way we evaluate things or persons. Or maybe it's not that blind or random. Maybe we choose a specific person because he or she are related to biological needs of the species. That would be what Schopenhauer says about love as a biological need for the species to reproduce. Men would be attracted to women with generous forms, with childbearing hips. Women, in return, would be attracted to strong, protective men. This is obviously all based on a very heterosexual and evolutionary, somehow, conception of love. Maybe we could also say that desire is not that blind or random because of social or cultural determinations. So what triggers desire might be a certain type of romantic mythology with culturally constructed canons of beauty, which obviously might change through history and depending on the culture we are speaking about. We could also consider the possibility that when we believe we love a person, what we really want is to resemble someone who possesses that person. There is some social mimetism at play within love, and philosophers like René Girard, for instance, have pointed that out, speaking about envy, jealousy, or competition at the core of our supposedly feelings of being in love. So to give you an example, let's say that I know someone really successful named Claudine, who has a boyfriend, Ronnie. Now let's say that I think I desire Ronnie. I think that I'm in love with him. But what really is happening here is not that I want Ronnie. What I truly want is actually to be like Claudine. I envy her, and she happens to have Ronnie. And that envy is the only reason why I want to have him too. Or it works actually better for objects. And we can see this strategy in ads all the time. We desire the next iPhone because everyone has it, or maybe a celebrity has it, not because you appraise or give value to the object itself.
That also echoes what Marcel Proust would say about snobism, when you desire what a certain social class is desiring in order to feel like you look like them. But we can ask ourselves if appraising value and bestowing value are necessarily mutually exclusive. So it feels like you don't have to choose between either conceiving love as appraising value, pre-existing in a person, and bestowing value, namely giving value by the act of loving. Maybe there is a bit of both in the act of love. So let's imagine the person we love does objectively have great characteristics. There is still a selective or filtered appreciation at play here. Our vision of these valuable characteristics depends on our actively attending to them. Other people may very well embody this characteristic to an even greater degree than the person we love, but still we do not attend to and appreciate these characteristics in others in the same way we do those in our beloved. We disregard, we silence both the negative properties of our beloved and the positive properties of others. Sometimes it's a negative characteristic, though, that can trigger love. Here I'm thinking about a funny story about Descartes, who fell in love as a child with a girl who had a slight strabism, so she basically couldn't look straight. And he fell in love with this girl for a number of reasons, certainly not linked to her strabism in particular, but because that was his first love, Whenever afterwards he would meet women with strabism, he would actually tend to fall in love with them more easily. So to go back on this compatibility of appraising value and bestowing value, maybe we could say that people who love each other both discover and enhance at the same time, or alternatively, the values they find in each other by sharing their life together. After speaking about love as valuing, we want now to go back to Aristophanes' speech and look at the type of relationship that love can be understood as, and to what extent we can understand this relationship as a union. So union, okay, but union of what exactly? A union of interest, perhaps? where we could say that love gets real when reciprocity becomes community, when the distinction between my interests and your interests is basically overcome. So is that a conception of selfless, of a type of disinterested love? Does such thing exist? Everything we do, so it seems, we do it because somehow it benefits us. That's what psychological egoism says with philosophers like Hobbes, for instance. Acts of altruism are just ways of satisfying ourselves, our own interest, or the interest of our offspring. We speak sometimes about the selfish gene theory. So can we really overcome this reciprocal altruism, which is a form of egoism, and make it a communal thing? Beyond a merge between two interests, the union that love might be can be about something else, 
a fusion maybe of the lover's cares, concerns, emotional responses and actions merging into that we as the metaphorical subject of these shared cares and concerns. Why do we love in that way? Aristotle suggests an answer when he says that loving relationships promote self-knowledge insofar as your beloved acts as a kind of mirror reflecting your character back to you. So we do not need to uh, take the metaphor of the mirror quite so literally. Rather, we could say that our beloved can reflect ourselves not through their similarity to us, but through the interpretation they offer of us, both explicitly and implicitly in their responses to our attitudes, etc. So love, when it's authentic, increases, says Aristotle, our sense of well-being. It elevates our sense of self-worth and it serves to develop our character or virtuous character, to bring out the best in each other is really what is at play here in love. I want myself to be better so as to be worthy of the love you have for me. You can find this idea of love having to do with self-validation and character improvement also in Aristophanes' speech in the symposium. But interestingly enough, only when love happens between two male halves. So that's a remark we could, you know, sneak in there. Another motif in Aristophanes' speech is the origins of sex differentiation and sexual orientation. We could upload the supposedly progressive or liberal implicit message about homosexuality here. And indeed, this speech contains the only reference in the symposium to female desire or to female same-sex love. But actually, Aristophanes puts in a subordinate position both female homosexuality between two female halves and heterosexuality, what Aristophanes calls the androgynous, because heterosexuality is supposed to lead to unfaithfulness for the benefits of procreation. So really, Aristophanes praises male-male relationships and he says that only two male lovers would be satisfied spending their lives together, giving up marriage and procreation. Let's explore further this conception of love as a union. What does it imply? Through love, the lovers redefine their identities as persons in terms of the relationship each allowing the other to play an important role in defining their own identity. It is because love involves forming a we that we must understand persons and not properties to be the real objects of love. My very identity as a person depends essentially on that we which is not possible to replace. Our loves, the person we love, but also our experiences of love as a relationship, are qualitatively different. They cannot be commensurate. We find also in Aristophanes' speech, again, this need to take into account the historicity of love, its temporality, its durability. Two lovers in a relationship build a common narrative. 
through a permanent transformation of both lovers by each other. There is a continuity in the past, a lasting aspect which gives consistency to the feeling of love and a projection onto the future. Love doesn't seem to be a state that can simply come and go. So this emotional interdependence that builds with time and that shapes our character respectively could be called a sort of dynamic permeability in the sense that love transforms the identity of the lover in a way that can sometimes, hopefully, foster the continuity of the love as each lover continually changes in response to the changes in the other. In that sense, we could say that we learn how to love, that it is acquired, not given. One consequence of love being perceived as this union, this we, is that we are putting ourselves at risk. The loss of a beloved person, the end of a relationship, can therefore amputate oneself from what they have become through the loving process. Love disarms our emotional defenses, it makes us vulnerable, porous, permeable, and that very permeability makes us change to a point that could be considered dangerous for our own sense of self. Therefore, today, we want zero risk, zero randomness. There is this safety ideology that dominates where we never want to lose control. On that aspect, I would highly recommend the book of Han called The Agony of Eros. So this conception of love as union might be too excessive of a commitment of ourselves, exposing ourselves to what could be perceived as a parasitic we. How about individual autonomy, independence? Is the loss of autonomy an acceptable consequence of love? One solution to this tension between the desire for union and the desire for autonomy, known as the paradox of love, would be to look at union not so much as a fusion, but more as a kind of federation of two selves, a third federal entity, so to say, instead of having the two entities melting, merging into one. So here you don't take away the freedom of the two lovers. Love can even promote, encourage the growth of autonomy of both the lovers. So I know this federation metaphor might be a bit abstract or theoretical for uh, most of us, but nonetheless, I think it's interesting to see that instead of having this very simple conception of union as a proper fusion between two selves that are being lost in the process giving birth to the we, to one entity, the couple, we can look at it as two selves maintaining their autonomy while building a third entity together as a we. Cool, that sounds great. Now, is it easily doable? Probably we're looking at some painful dynamics or definitely some instability here. But I thought it was worth mentioning nonetheless. You might have noticed that in this episode we didn't talk at all about polyamorous relationships. Not that it isn't interesting. I am always very curious about people who manage to do that in their life. But, uh, and I do think that there is a possibility for diachronic polyamory, namely that you can love 
different people at different times in your life, but I am not so sure I would be able to be involved in several romantic relationships synchronically at the same time. Uh, no, actually, I take that back. I, I think that's potentially possible, though a lot of work. I guess we can be in love with several people at the same time in different ways, but still I can't help but remaining unsure about the feasibility of polyamory if you need to get the informed consent of all partners involved, which is at the core of its definition. Good luck with that. I guess some people are able to do that. Uh, I can only admire them. While keeping Aristophanes Smith in mind, we came across various attempts to define love. As a matter of good luck, focusing on the falling in love primordial moment attached to certain given characteristics of the person, we also mentioned that love can merely be a desire for the other's love, for his or her validation or recognition. What I love in that sense is to be loved, regardless of the person who loves me. We could have added on that note that we might be willing to love for the sake of loving. Maybe desiring to love is more fundamental than desiring to be loved. So love in itself is an object of desire. And indeed, there is a pleasure taken at caring for someone, even if this care is not reciprocated. Or at least there is a desire for it. Sometimes you can feel as if you have this growing, aimless, loving ability inside of you and you're just missing the target, the lucky recipient to propel it into them, to give it all. We've been also looking at love more as a skill you need to learn and relearn again and again, a perpetual readjustment to the other and to the other's expectations. An exercise that can be pleasant, but also painful, as we're going to see in the next text we will read from Sartre, on which we will base our next episode. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? A podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast as well as composing all of the music. Stay tuned for the next episode.